This is Fake Plastic Podcast, a podcast that unlocks the alchemy of Radiohead, one song, music video, or live performance at a time. My name is Savannah Wright. In our second episode, we learned about the various timbres Radiohead uses to craft a unique sonic landscape. From the chunky guitar of Creep to the eerie synth of like spinning plates, Radiohead is purposeful in the instruments and effects they use to convey a message. So what happens when you boil all of those timbres into one instrument? The answer is Christopher O'Reilly. Through True Love Waits and Hold Me To This, Christopher weaves the distinct instrumental voices of Radiohead into one solo piano interpretation. The result is mesmerizing. This is a special bonus interview with Christopher O'Reilly. Among other things, we'll discuss what he learned about Radiohead from transcribing their work and why he believes that Radiohead's music, like that of the classical greats, will stand the test of time. So, welcome, Christopher. So here we are. (laughs) So, so you do. So, this is a, you're doing a bunch of podcasts, or you're doing a particular Radiohead-centered podcast. Yeah. So, I started working here back in September, and at first, I was just the intern, so I edited everything, and I never mm-hmm. produced. Mm-hmm. But now, I have the opportunity to produce my own. And Vic and I were talking about how much we love Radiohead, and he was like, "Wouldn't it be great to do a Radiohead podcast?" Yeah. And I looked, and there weren't any really comprehensive ones with the, the, right. that they did interviews for, yeah. and that was so surprising to me because Radiohead is such a big deal in the yes. music scene. Yeah. So, yeah, that's why I started it. Yeah, so. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> so let's start with you. Um, I know you've been asked this question a lot, but <laughs> but I do want to hear it in your own words about why you chose to adapt Radiohead as opposed to other artists. Like, why did you want to start there? See, I've I've mostly been a classical artist my whole life, except for when uh, I think in like sixth grade I decided, you know, that girls were not that impressed with fast octaves and list Hungarian rhapsodies and stuff like that. So yeah, I yeah. started a little rock band, and not a great time to be a keyboard player in rock music. I mean, we just had like The Doors and Iron Butterfly and a little bit of Santana. But um, so I kept with that and then went on from there to jazz rock. I was doing a lot of Miles Davis, Bitches Brew, you know, sort of era stuff. Got heavily into John McLaughlin and the Mahavishnu Orchestra. And so that that really led me into serious jazz. And I was playing jazz in high school when I went to music conservatory at New England Conservatory of Music. I was going with the idea that I was going to pursue both. But pretty soon got there and realized that I was much more challenged by revitalizing classical pieces and so stuck with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was from there that I uh, just stuck with classical music, but was always listening to new things. And I also, uh, almost 20 years ago, um, started a radio program called From the Top, which was on NPR. And um, that was going to be all about all kinds of young musicians playing all kinds of music and then the stations said, no, it has to be all classical. If you play one minute of jazz or rock, you're off. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point, we were doing it, and uh, it's an hour-long program, and there was a halfway point where uh, stations were either going to play what we sent them or break away for local business. Right. So I used that as my as my solo spot. I, I would play a little solo. And so I thought it would be cool. I found out at that time about OK Computer, mm-hmm. and it was like the most written about record, you know, in in rock music since, you know, the White Album or Happy Road or something like that. Mm -hmm. Got it, fell in love with it, started collecting, you know, everything 
prior to it, you know, mm-hmm. B-sides and live tracks and all kinds of things, and really got into the music. And so then when I started running out of little Chopin preludes to play on the show, I thought, well, how cool would that be to be playing Radiohead on the program? And everybody in the audience, nobody at NPR is going to know that I'm not playing classical music. They all figure I'm playing classical music. And our announcer would come on, and at the break they would say, that was our host Christopher O'Reilly playing Karma Police by Radiohead. And we would start getting email into the program saying, you know, who is this Mr. Head and where can I find his beautiful music? Right. Because they just figured I was playing classical stuff. There's a long tradition of classical composers. Franz Liszt, the virtuoso pianist of the early and mid-19th century, is the best example of somebody who would play not only his own music but also transcribe orchestral pieces, opera pieces, art songs for piano solo partly just to proselytize for other composers who weren't getting around as much as he was, Mm -hmm. and because there was no radio at the time. Um, And so there's a long tradition of doing pieces not intended for piano on piano, because piano has the capability of sounding orchestral or ideally sounding like a human voice. Mm -hmm. So I had done a little bit of transcribing of other classical pieces before, but I I really got the idea of doing Radiohead on the piano just because I just wanted to get as close to the music as I possibly could, you Mm -hmm. know. And so then it was just a matter of, you know, figuring out which one... Actually, it was really a matter of figuring out which ones I didn't want to do because I really wanted to do most of them. It was like, I love all the tracks on all all those records. And and, uh, I think the first one I did was True Love Waits Mm -hmm. um, and then just kind of went from there. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about that. How did you decide which songs to put on each album and how to, I guess, arrange them? Because there are so many ones you could have done. Yeah, it was it was usually a matter of just following my obsession. Okay. It was usually a matter of, you know, which song I was just obsessed with. You know, I, I was listening to that huge compilation, uh, what is it, like a 10-disc set called, I'm blanking on it now. But it was a, it was an internet sort of collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, of all their live tracks and all the B-sides and things like that. So I would be listening to that stuff obsessively. And it was just a matter of which song I was listening to for like a hundred times. And then I would get an idea, you know, like how I would get my foot in the door on this particular song. The The other part of the classical sort of frame of mind is that as a pianist, I'm really interested in two things, texture and harmony. Harmony, like just a harmonic language, you know, like a chord change that kind of gets under your skin or makes your hair stand on end. It's just the sensual aspect of harmony. And also texture, meaning that, you know, a lot of pop music is rather vertical. It's really, you know, sort of power chords and not really, it's just monolithic and not terribly interweaving. And the best classical music for me is it's like Bach and Shostakovich and Ravel and Chopin that is an interweaving of voices. And so even though, you know, we wouldn't necessarily call Radiohead a, a classic rock band or, or even a classically minded rock band or an art rock band, I mean, I think Johnny is probably one of the only ones who's, who reads music, per right. se. Every song that I really gravitated to was always a culmination of all five members of the band contributing one particular theme or motive. Um, you, you listen to things like They're There, and there are, there are recordings of them just kind of jamming their way through that. 
but pretty soon, you know, you realize that there's this guitar line that Johnny's contributing and and things like on All I Need, you know, you have the sort of the counterpoint of the the drum and bass being in 4-4, but over an over layer of, you know, a 10-beat uh, measure. Mm-hmm. And so how that sort of is a mandala and uh, and and sort of this overlay of, of different textures and different voices. Let Down is another great example. Yeah. Because um, you've got the harmony, but you've also got this 20-beat guitar line and then, you know, this, these other things. Tom would always, you know, if, if people would request it, you know, they just no, I can't do it. It's too effing hard, you know. <laughs> and they eventually brought it back into the repertoire. But, you know, those types of songs would be the ones that I would gravitate to first. There were other things. Obviously, you know, it wasn't about popularity because I never imagined I would do Creep because Creep is really... When you come down to it, it's, it's more noise-oriented. I mean, mm-hmm. the stuff that Ed does at the beginning, and, and it, it's a little bit more noise-oriented or, or, or electioneering or things like that. You know, the things that aren't really contrapuntally based mm-hmm. are the things that I sort of stayed away from. And, you know, and there, there would be times that when I would consider doing one song or another and then maybe, I, but I would never really start on it even if I didn't really feel like I had a good foot in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as I loved the song, you know, it, it just if it didn't really have a way to happen on the piano, you know, I wouldn't just do it for its own sake. Mm-hmm. Did you think that you were going to do two separate albums or were you thinking, okay, I'll just do this album? I was just doing, you know, I was really just doing them because I loved them and I was playing them on my radio program. And at the same time, I was doing Nick Drake. And, I, and, and when I first did my True Love Waits tour in the UK, it had just been after getting completely into Elliot Smith. So I was really, you know, kind of doing songs as I came upon them. Mm-hmm. So it was actually the first uh, first show I did on NPR it was a program called Performance Today, and it was done as a live performance show out of their DC studios. And I remember going on to that show, and I played some Shostakovich, some Nick Drake, some Remo, and some Radiohead. And subsequent to that, that was the first time I'd played Radiohead on a national platform. And, you know, like a week later the tracks that I played of Radiohead on that show were on like 130 Radiohead websites around the world. And so it was that point that, you know, Sony called and said, mm, you know, is this something you'd be interested in recording? I said, yeah, I think so. <laughs> and it was actually at that point that, you know, I'd been doing sort of, you know, sort of rough versions. I was falling back a little bit on my old improvisatory roots and I realized, you know, if I'm going to go into the recording studio with stuff, I can't just kind of go with the muse. I really have to write these things out. So just about every one of my arrangements is completely written out. I mean, there's a little yeah. bit of improvisation when I get into things like everything in its right place. And I did sort of a loose writing out of gagging order, for instance. But everything else is really notated down to the second. You know, and part of that is is really an acknowledgement of the lack of capacity of of the piano because if you're just playing the harmonies you know like Jerry Lee Lewis or something that's only part of it you know you the, there's the sort of the overtones the jangliness of of cymbals mm-hmm. the the overtones of of uh, electric guitar you know the distortion the overtones of just acoustic guitar that's really more than the sum of the notes 
And so, you know, the the accompaniments that I did were really sort of very slowed down improvisations written out so that I would get that sort of halo of notes that were associated but not directly with the prevailing harmony. And so it would get that sense of a little bit of, you know, extra stuff, some spice around the edges. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely a fuller sound than just if you were to write out the melody, and that's what I appreciated. But also the way I was introduced to your work was from my sister. She loves to play the piano, and so she got the the book of, I think it was True Love Waits. And I remember looking at it on the page and just being like, how are you playing this? (laughs) Like, It's so crazy how you, you added all of those notes and getting it down to the second. Like, what was that process like? Was it just really arduous, or did you enjoy it? (laughs) Well, I loved it. You know, but but it was you know, it it took some things took forever. Mm-hmm. Some things wrote themselves out pretty handily and pretty quickly. You know, things like Karma Police and Exit Music came together real fast. Even something as complex as Let Down, because I was really just threading together these already existing lines. That sort of wrote itself. Things like Two Plus Two is Five was really arduous and um, was pretty arduous to put together just for performance. I mean, there are some of those in that book that I, I don't even play anymore. <laughs> two plus two is five is really at the, at the end of my capabilities. Um, I was able to record them, and, uh, and that, was, that was fine. And it was also partly that every arrangement that I did and made it impossible to play for myself, I realized, okay, I can play this, and then I'd move on to the next one, and it would be even harder. So <laughs> it was the other the other part of not memorizing these things was because I was sort of living in composer hell. It's like I'm, I'm revising them every time I'm going through them, mm-hmm. and every time I'm doing a new arrangement, I have new ideas about how to deal with old problems. There were things like, um, you know, of course, I had to do Paranoid Android. Yes. Um, but there again, you know, like in Creep, there were lots of places where there was more noise than not. I mean, you know, uh, remember my remember my name. I mean, you know, Tom's just screaming that part. There's no template on the piano that makes that happen. But at the same time, there's that screaming guitar solo at the very end in the coda that Johnny does. And so I decided to make make a good approximation of that that then also worked pretty nicely as far as approximating sort of with clusters. I mean, uh, probably mm-hmm. better off playing it with my fists than my fingers and oh, getting that okay. sound of Tom's voice. Yeah, because I I'm, I'm saw that in another interview you talked about using clusters to capture those solos and the shouting. And so were you really just banging your fists? Is that not, what it was? Not really. I, <laughs> I, even, even, even there I was way too meticulous okay, and yeah. wrote them all out. Yeah. But So how, how did you capture those clusters? Like how did you choose which notes to... At a, at a certain at a certain point, you know, it you know, I I probably over notated, and then it was a matter of taking notes out. That you know, it was like if you were a great sculptor, it was it was a matter of chipping away at everything that the piece wasn't. At, at oh, a certain okay. point, you know, I'd sure. I'd I'd be I'd be painting with a, a big brush for a while, and then I would say, okay, well, fine, you know, you know, this can't be played, and it really just doesn't sound that good. So, what can we get rid of, and what is essential? Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, I I wanted to go back to also what you were saying about Counterpoint and Radiohead and the weaving of voices. Mm-hmm. So in OK Computer, Radiohead introduced a lot more instruments, so there's even more voices to handle. So how did you decide like which ones to emphasize and which to omit? Well, for instance, again, um, Airbag is a good example of, you know, leading up to the last verse, there's a sort of a more noise-oriented sort of improvisation 
And so since I didn't want to emulate that specifically, I decided to take the overall chord structure and do sort of a, a little riff on that that would, that would create the same kind of ramping up of tension yeah. coming back into the verse. But so I was, so instead of, instead of emulating and copying the actual moment in that song itself, I was emulating sort of the dramatic shape based on materials that I, that they had introduced at the beginning of the piece and that I had introduced in the beginning of the piece. Likewise, you know, let down. There there are, you know, some some parts there that are more, you know, sort of electronic noise and again, I would revert to, you know, harmony rather than rather than noise to to make that make that tension happen. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have to say let down. It kills me every time. Like I hear your I love version that song. of it. It's so good. Thanks. I'm um, so Another question I had about your transcribing process is, do you go through the song linearly, or do you start with a chorus, or how do you approach it? You talked about getting your foot in it. But. Yeah, I mean, so so sometimes it's it's a matter of, of the bass line, or just sort of the, it's mostly the accompaniment, you know, that's, that's what really gets me in the door, you know, because there's a textural thing, like the opening riff of Let Down. Or like uh, the opening riff of "There, There," and so so it's the accompaniment that then suggests to me a basic like a like a bed of of musical material on the piano, and then from there I get the melody in there. the The other part of it that's fun and, and goes back to Liszt's transcribing process is that he had a way of writing so that it sounded like he was playing with three hands or maybe four, yeah. and part of that has to do with you know, I mean, if I were just making a, a transcription uh, of, of a Radiohead song and just wanted to do it in piano style, I would have the melody up top, but it would just sound so silly. It would sound like, you know, a little girl singing it because the, the real register is right in the middle of the piano. And so I end up doing a sort of a Listian trick of of playing the melody with the harmony on either side of it, sort of playing with the melody with my thumbs. So it's oh. right there in the middle. So it makes it makes it feel like I'm playing two different hands of accompaniment and a third hand of, of melody. So there's a lot of there's a lot of splitting between the hands and in that in the real register where he sings it. So mm-hmm. that 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 becomes another problem of you know density and so, so why it's always good to try and ferret out what is non-essential and get rid of it because it can just sound really thick. I mean, a lot of people really seem to think that, that you know, my stuff is sort of overcomplicated. I've, I'm, still, I'm still wrestling with texture and, and also time and, and balance so that the melody is really on top. I mean, so, so when I recorded Black Star, the melody was in there, but I don't, I don't think it was really well accented. I don't think it was really well brought out in a profile sort of way. Um, and so, I, you know, even in my classical playing, I've striven now to make that more of a, of a function, uh, less the exception than, than really the rule. Another thing that I, that I learned and actually comes around now, I think, I think the last arrangement or the latest arrangement of Radiohead that I did was from a moon-shaped pool. I did Glass Eyes. And what was really cool about that whole record, I think, is that it's really very uh, free in terms of time. This goes back to, like, you know, videotape from what that was from. That was in Rainbows. And and I made my arrangement originally from 
uh, their live version. And I've recorded that one on, on on an album that I did, you know, compiling lots of different bands. But yeah, Videotape was on that record. And so that was very rhythm, tempo-oriented. And then, of course, when they came out with their version on the record, the drum part is completely deconstructed and really can't be approximated in terms of how you would write that down or what, what the tempo would be. It's sort of like a, a rhythmic fabric. Mm-hmm. And then with a, a moon-shaped pool, again, there's lots of songs that are very free. I mean, there, you can't be, it's impossible to be aware of any kind of click track. It's very, you know, what we say in the, in the, in the classical business, rubato. Is in other um, words, you have, you have an obviously underlying tempo, but you're kind of pulling it and pushing it a little bit. So it's really quite free and would be impossible to play with a click track. And so I, I, I thought of that very much when I was doing my piano arrangement of Glass Eyes and playing it very freely. And then I remembered back to listening to early edits of my True Love Waits album and figured out that, yeah, the ones that, uh, the takes that I really wanted to do, wanted to include mostly, had nothing to do with generating pulse or tempo. Hmm. They always had to do with the shaping of the line. And it might have been just slightly out of time but that was the stuff that sounded best. I think, you know, I think it's dangerous to get too caught up in actually, you know, trying to generate excitement or generate excitement through the tempo or the pulse. And I think it's always, you know, with this music, um, which is so beautiful in terms of melody, in terms of harmony and texture, mm-hmm. I, think, I think the beat takes care of itself mostly. And, yeah. and also, in the end, you're playing by yourself. So sure. you're not, you don't have to be playing you know, with an absolutely strict tempo. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then there is the instance when you did that collaboration with Matt Heimovitz. Yeah. So how did that collaboration come about? He's a, he's a wonderful classical artist who has also been doing a sort of similar but different things that I was doing. So while I was playing Radiohead in concert halls, he was playing Bach in coffee houses and bars. And then he was also starting to do a little bit of crossover, and we got together to do our first record together, Shuffle, Play, Listen, sort of an homage to, you know, sort of the the randomness of playing things on Shuffle on the iPod. We did a lot of, uh, uh, we did uh, two Radiohead songs, and of course his one of his and my favorite were, again, Mahavishnu Orchestra, John McLaughlin. And, and so Matt was really cool because... He really brought more of a classical sensibility. I was just crossing over, you know. I was mm-hmm. just going straight into Radiohead. But he said, you know, we should think about these songs because we can't have the advantage of the lyrics and we don't want to necessarily paint with music the meaning of the lyrics because that would sound sort of melodramatic and silly. Mm-hmm. But when when you're playing a classical sonata, for instance, a sonata movement, you're presented with the themes, and then they mix it up a little bit, and they develop, and then they, the recapitulation is when those themes come back. And usually when you come to the recapitulation, there's some sense of evolution. Something has changed in this dialogue, in the rhetoric of, of the two themes mixing and developing that makes, even if it's an absolutely strict return transcription of the original theme you have to have a sense that something has changed and something has grown so he was really cool about getting that sense in these radiohead songs that the final return of the verse really has to be 
different, not in terms mm-hmm. of how we write it out, but in terms of how we're feeling when we're doing it. So that was a really cool insight that he had, and, and so we've kind of continued that with our work together. So yeah, we, we literally had our first concert together, oh, it must be 10 or 12 years ago right now, uh, in Billings, Montana, mm-hmm. and we had very little contact up until that point. I was living in Cleveland at the time, and he was playing a festival there, and we had sort of early versions of a couple of the songs that we were doing. But we really brought the whole concert's worth of stuff to Billings, and they gave us four days on stage before the concert. And he and I just worked for 12, 14 hours a day. And what was so cool was that it never felt like work. It just felt like we were just so so into it. And... Mm-hmm. We just love doing it. And uh, so, yeah, we've been working together ever since. We're, we're now doing another transcription pro- uh, uh, project. Mm-hmm. Um, there, was a, there was a thing a few years back with um, the American composer John Carigliano. He, he did the uh, soundtrack to Altered States, for instance. And he had some mostly classical background. And he was commissioned to do resettings of Bob Dylan songs. So in other words, these were lyrics of songs that he had not heard, but he was commissioned to to make his own songs based on the lyrics in his own style. So that was kind of a cool project. Mm-hmm. And so a friend of ours, Lisa Delon, a soprano, wanted to do sort of the same thing with us and with a few different bands and a few different composers. Huh. So John Carigliano uh, got on board with us again. We, she wanted us, Lisa wanted us to do a Joni Mitchell song, "The Wolf That Lives in Lindsay." And so John reset that, and so for all of the original songs, I'm doing the arrangement for cello and piano. Okay. And so that's like seven songs. The, probably the most interesting, I think, would you know, would, would you'd know, of course, the the Velvet Underground song "Venus in Furs." Yeah. And guess who we're getting to do the uh, reset on that? But n- none other than Philip Glass. Whoa! So yeah, pretty cool project. Yeah, that is a cool project. So when you and Matt were working together, you said that he had um, input on how you arranged it, making sure that the final chorus had something different. So would you present him your arrangement, and then okay, and then he would add what he thought? Or yeah, there was it was because a lot of times I would be asking him to go back and forth in the role of carrying the melody, mm-hmm. but then also pitching in and, and doing things with the accompaniment texture. Oh, okay. And so invariably, I would I would present him with what I thought would be good enough to, you know, kind of get us through the song. And then he gets in there and as unplayable as whatever I sent him would be, he would make it even more unplayable. But what was really cool was how he was able to inhabit each one of the singers. We did a, a piece by the Cocteau Twins, a couple of pieces by Cocteau Twins, and he was able to make Elizabeth Fraser's voice come alive on the cello by sort of playing in unison on a couple of different strings, but slightly out of phase, so so that it had that sort of chorusing effect that she always has on her recordings, even to the point where, you know, the Times Times critic, you know, came, well, you know, they did pretty well on their own, but they had to resort to, you know, effects pedals on this one song. It's like, no, dude, that's all him. (laughs) (laughs) That's really impressive. Yeah. Um, how did it? How else did it change the way that you transcribed it? Because you you said before it was just you and your piano, and now you have someone else you have to work with, and you also have to figure out how to time it correctly yeah. and, and stay in sync. So, how did that affect your transcription process? 
Well, it actually makes it a lot easier because, you know, the cello is a real lyrical instrument. It, the, 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 the thing sings. I mean, the one time, the one time that, you know, that I had a long conversation with Tom York was just after My True Love Waits came out and we were backstage at Madison Square Garden and, and he was very self-deprecating and, and, uh, I, you know, for instance, I was saying, you know, I was working on a, an arrangement of Lift, which existed in a 1997 version, and then in a new version that they were, you know, trotting out in 2003. And so I said, you know, I'm, I'm sticking to the older version. He said, oh yeah, that's a good idea because the old, the new one's crap. <laughs> and then, then I said, you know, Pyramid Song is is obviously the most quintessentially piano vocal song in your repertoire, but I could never imagine doing it without, you know, you, the sound mm-hmm. of your voice. He said, you mean without me screwing it up? He didn't, <laughs> he didn't say screwing. Right. Um, so having Matt finally, you know, then I could finally do Pyramid Song because I had a singing instrument to play it with. It's very, it's very difficult synchronizing just on that particular song because the rhythm is very, uh, is very difficult. It's a, mm-hmm. what we call a hemiola, sort of when you have a, a six-beat pattern, let's say, and it can be distributed either in uh, three groups of two or two groups of three. Um, and it's not quite that simple, but Pyramid Song has that kind of syncopation that goes over several bar lines and finally lines up again at the end or towards, you know, after four bars or whatever. It's literally in 4-4, four, four, but it's very hard to hear it that way. Um, and it also doesn't help that, you know, Phil Selway actually said in an interview, oh, it really doesn't, it's not in any, any particular time signature. <laughs> no, it really is. I've got, I've got the receipts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so can you walk me through a little bit more about Pyramid Song? Like how you, how you put that together? Because that one really stood out to me. Also, Weird Fish's arpeggio. That was really, like, could you tell me how um, Matt did... Is he? It's just one instrument. Like there's no instrument. layering. Okay. No. Because I feel like I was hearing three different kind of like ambient strings. Well, we've got those sort of the the sort of Bollywood string sounds. Yeah. That that uh, pervade that song, and that Matt is using. He's sliding between artificial harmonics, so he's oh. not those. That's when you're not pressing the string down; you're just touching it at places that resonate just naturally uh, because of the overtone series. Um, if if you just press one note, not press a note down on on the string, you you actually touch the note in a certain place. It makes that high pitched sound because you're basically touching a node that is halfway from one end of the string to another. Okay. And that there are several nodes along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, artificial harmonics is when you're cre- you're creating with your thumb, you're creating an artificial node and then just sliding up with that, with that perfect sort of sound. And so then you can play any note, you know, a- along the string. And so that's, that's him, you know, sliding up and down. And there are some, you know, effects uh, that are not, melodic but effects that are basically drawn from that technique that he also uses a lot in the song oh okay yeah i was always fascinated by that timbre i couldn't figure out what he was doing though yeah. so thank you for explaining yeah, of that course. so oh this was a question that uh vic actually had when you're performing these um transcriptions of radiohead are you thinking of the originals in your head or are you just focused on the way that you transcribed it i'm i'm thinking always about the originals mm-hmm and because I'm because I'm I've really tried to get as close to the originals as possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, as I as I said, if I if I came up with a song 
an arrangement of which I felt like, oh, well, mm, this part really just sounds kind of lame, so, but, you know, maybe they'll just trust me to get through this. <laughs> I, I would just not do it, you know. Yeah. I just, I always have to come up with some kind of solution mm-hmm. for every second of the song. The interesting thing, though, is about, I, I, I think back to the first big Radiohead concert I did, which, which was at UC Berkeley. And, I, you know, I'd, I'd already had people saying to me, well, you know, like, who needs to hear you play Radiohead on the piano? I mean, I can download that stuff in about 30 seconds. And that brings up, like, the whole idea of interpretation from the classical world. In other words, I played another concert in in, uh, Munich many years ago, and, of course, they were a very schooled audience. And I always remember I was playing Debussy and I was playing Schubert, and there was a quality of concentrated silence in this audience which was to say that, yeah, they knew how the Schubert D major sonata went, and they know how the Debussy image book two goes. They didn't come to my concert to hear the piece. They came to hear what I was going to do with the piece. And that's, that's what an interpretation is. That, you know, otherwise, there would be no reason to play any of these old pieces even. And so at Berkeley... Fast forward, you know, I I would start a song and there would be this murmuring of recognition in the audience about what song it was. And then they were hunkered down because, yeah, they knew the song real well. They're there hearing what I'm going to do with it. Yeah. Well, I don't think I answered your question, though. That just kind of got me off on a tangent. No, that was very (laughs) informative. But also, yeah, you kind of answered it at the beginning when you're always thinking of the original when you're playing. So Mm -hmm. that that makes sense. Um, yeah, you mentioned this briefly, but just if you could, uh, I guess, define it again. In a Q on CBC interview, you talked about how you used overtones to, um, I guess, so it wasn't just a straight um, translation. So can you briefly explain uh, how you picked out those overtones? Well, mostly it's it's from um, when I was explaining about the, the uh, harmonics on the cello being a naturally recurring phenomenon. If you just play... If you play one note on the piano and then you touch it, touch the string halfway through, you get an octave. And with the overtone series, as you go higher and higher, it goes, you know, octave, fifth, fourth, third. And then it starts getting a little, you know, iffy. You get into these these notes that are not necessarily part of the overall chord. Hmm. But are still part of the scale of that chord, and so those would be the those would be the notes that I would try and institute, you know, sort of at the higher end of the piano register, mostly so that I wasn't just playing, you know, sort of unisons and block chords, but that yeah. I would I would play. There would be, you know, I think it probably was part of my attitude of like ten fingers, no waiting. You know, there, I <laughs> wanted to all have all my fingers uh, engaged at all times, and so that made these. And and also a lot of a lot of it really has to do with making those overtones, making those notes that don't really belong with the chord, just making them sort of parenthetical, so that they don't you know so that they don't sound wrong. They just sound sort of extra, sort of halo like. Yeah, yeah, to fill it out. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so what was different about transcribing Radiohead's music versus Nick Drake or Elliot Smith? Well, Nick Drake was, you know, the cool thing there was that, you know, for every song he had a particular tuning. I mean, guitar players are still, you know, ferreting out, you know, what exact tuning he was using for which song. 
And what was nice was because, again, I didn't want to fall back on just following the whim of my fingers. I had, I didn't have to figure out what the tuning was, but I had, I decided to really keep very strictly to the patterning of his accompaniments and set them straight down on piano and then work directly from there. So that, that was, you know, in a way, working with Nick's music was, was easier because it was really always uh, voice and guitar and the guitar the guitar patterns were really very well set out and so i mostly you know kept very strictly to those patterns with elliot you know i have you know i have as many live concerts of elliot smith on my ipods as i do radiohead and and actually you know i don't know why i have to have so many radiohead uh, concerts and shows because they're really a very tightly rehearsed band. They're not like a jam band, you know. Right. They, they really, you know, it's 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 only a matter of like how on they are. It doesn't really change the song itself. With Elliot, there were differences, big differences between the heavily produced studio versions of his songs, the band live versions of his songs, and then the solo versions of his songs. So with Elliot, I had a lot of choice a lot of material from which to choose and decide how i wanted to best approach each of those songs or or incorporate all of the material just in different verses oh that's fascinating if this was also about elliot smith i would go even deeper into that oh i know no i i I love elliot and and um i never i never got to meet him i never got to see him play live Mm. i got to know elliot's dad and stepmom Mm -hmm. pretty well and they were and they came to my concert. I, I did an all all Elliot concert a few years back at the Getty Museum, mm. and or at the the Skidmore Center or what is it? Uh, I forget. Oh, like Skirball. Skirball. Yeah, at the Skirball Center, and they came down from Portland, and uh, it, that was an amazing experience. Wow, that's neat. You got to meet him. Yeah. Um. So, did you? I think you mentioned a little bit about this, but I guess we'll come back to it anyway. Did you encounter some similar patterns between the work of Radiohead and another classical composer or composition that you're familiar with? You know, that's an interesting question because there are some things that I brought to my Radiohead arrangements that came from other classical composers. There's the texture of there there is, in retrospect, based on a very particularly thorny part of one of the hardest concertos that I play, the Rokofiev Second Concerto. Hmm. I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of material in Subterranean Homesick Alien that reminds me. First of all, it reminds me a little bit of Miles Davis in the modern yeah. era, and also um, makes me makes me think of Debussy. And I was thinking about Debussy when I was working on it. Of course, and it wasn't until many years later after I'd done both. Subterranean Homesick Alien and Nick Drake's Parasite that I realized that aside from the intro and outro of Subterranean Homesick Alien, it's Nick's song. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Interesting. It's It's totally the same. I've never compared the two. Oh, check it out. Here's a quick comparison between O'Reilly's interpretation of Parasite... subterranean homesick alien. I must say I was skeptical, but it's true. There are some striking similarities here. 
And what is it about Radiohead's work that you believe allows it to bridge rock and classical? I think for for the the two main aspects that again compel me to play any music that I play, whether it's classical or Radiohead or whatever. But yeah, again the the idea of of really sensual harmony and really sort of engaging an intricate texture and counterpoint and the interweaving of voices. Right. So those are really the two 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 things that really make me want to play any kind of music and and certainly are there in in very rich quality and quantity in Radiohead's music. Mm. So you talked a little bit about um some pieces that were difficult to tra- transcribe. Was there one that you found the most challenging? I think that would definitely be 2 plus 2 is 5. Okay. That's just like so complicated and so busy. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some things that were technologically difficult. Um, there were lots of tries during motion picture soundtrack to get all of those harp glissandos yeah. noted, noted on paper. And there were several times when I would just like put one note too many and the computer would just blow up. I mean, it would just like strew notes all over my screen and I'd have to start over. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Was that just a program error? Yeah, a program error. Whoa. (laughs) Just too much. Too much information, too much data. And so for 2 plus 2, was it because it has that really uh, intense, I guess, in literature, because I'm a literature major, it's like a Mm. volta where all of a sudden he's just yelling. Is that because it was, is that why it was so difficult? The, not the yelling so much, but the the really intricate guitar part at the very beginning. Oh, very, at the beginning, okay. At the, at the beginning, rhythmically and and just dense, in out of density. Oh, okay. It was that was the really hardest thing to to really get, and and I think that comes again towards the more climactic ending as okay. well. Just really thick and and coming really hard and fast. Yeah. Yeah, it is quite fast. That's true. <laughs> Uh, was there a piece that was your favorite to transcribe or you found the most fulfilling? Well, for a long time it was let down. And then lately, you know, as I said, I just recently did uh, Glass Eyes. And that one to me, it was it was so great and so much fun because I literally just started out with Tom's opening piano riff. And that's the other thing about, you know, that I love so much about that record, you know, Moonshaped Pool is like... There's so much piano playing on yeah. that record. Um, uh, you're welcome, Tom. Uh, <laughs> and and so again, I just I took his opening riff, and then I never looked back. I wasn't I wasn't transcribing any of the rest of that song. It was just I was using the harmony and just, just kind of letting my fingers do the walking. That so that was you know, let down used to be the most fun to to transcribe, and now I'd, I'd have to say green uh, glass eyes is my new favorite. Hmm. So I didn't know that you had recorded Glass Eyes. What record is that on? It's not on any record. You, oh, you can okay. find it. You can find it on my website, ChristopherO'Reilly.com, and there are lots of. Um, I mean, because I did two whole records of Radiohead, um, True Love Waits, and then the other one is Hold Me to This, and then subsequent to that, I did a, a record that had all kinds of bands on it. You know, Pink Floyd, Nirvana, Tori Amos, Cocteau Twins, The Smiths. Mm-hmm. Various people, and there were two Radiohead songs on an album called Out of My Hands. Right. And so that had videotape and All I Need. Oh, okay. So uh, of, aside from that, there are still uh, a bunch of others 
mostly of other bands, but I think there are a couple of a couple of Radiohead songs that I've not yet recorded commercially. Okay. There are some that are available as like singles. You know, for instance, I did based on the Christmas webcast of many years ago, I loved Tom's solo version of Good Morning Mr. Magpie. Mm-hmm. And as I said, you know, I also did Lift. Yeah. Um and when I sent final tracks of Hold Me to This to the band, you know, to get the okay. They said, well, thanks for sending your, you know, latest stuff. It's really great. Unfortunately, Lyft and Good Morning, Mr. Magpie have not been commercially released by the band themselves, and so they're not available for you to cover. So subsequent to that, of course, you know, because I'd already recorded them, uh, Good Morning, Mr. Magpie showed up in a rather different version on one of the later records, so I was able to release that. Oh, okay. <laughs> still haven't Still haven't been able to get Lyft out. Yeah, oh. So with uh, a song like Good Morning, Mr. Bagpie and other tracks off the King of Limbs, is that the only King of Limbs song that you've done? Yes. So how did you approach that? Because I feel like King of Limbs is so rhythmically layered that it would be kind of difficult to transcribe. Well, as I said, Good Morning, Mr. Bagpie, you need to go back to um, the the Christmas webcast Okay, so it's based... It's based purely on that because that was just guitar and voice. Yeah. And uh, really chugging along pretty, you know, pretty muscularly, um, sort of like uh, like uh, polyethylene part two, which I've also done. But yeah, that that was strictly from that just, you know, home done, home version. Okay. So do you think you would want to do any King of Limbs tracks or do you think they just, no, they're not No, I'm not a big suitable. fan of that record. No, yeah, it's kind of controversial for a lot of yeah. other fans. So that's not just you. Yeah. What about Moonshaped Pool? Are there any other songs that you'd be interested in transcribing from that one? Or? There are a couple, but but Glass Eyes was the one that I felt best about. And mm-hmm. so that's the only one I've done from that record. Um, Codex would be another really cool one to do. I actually liked, um, I didn't like the soundtrack, but I loved the opening uh, credits uh, song that Tom did for Suspiria. Yeah. That's a pretty cool song. Mm-hmm. In, you know, in general, I I like, you know, and I've, I've done other songs like from The Eraser. Uh, oh, you have? Yeah. I haven't, I haven't commercially recorded it, but I did at least one. The thing with me is that I really like his songwriting like mad. I just love his songwriting. And so there were things I I think even with, you know, as as much as I didn't like King of Limbs, wasn't there a in the basement version of of that record or another yeah. one of those records that there you are, you know, with Tom and Johnny just playing these, you know, studio versions of these songs. And that's great. Yeah. You know, it's like they get so up themselves when they get into, you know, I mean, you know, Tom with his beatboxing and and the the over over technical over technologically, you know, sort of embroidered versions of these songs, at basis, you know, the the songs are really great. Right. I mean, you know, the the only one that, you know, and and again, you know, this was another technological choice, but I thought it was a brilliant one way back in Amnesia, I believe, you know, with like spinning plates. Mm-hmm. I made my version based purely on his live version. Yeah, I was gonna ask, but uh, but I think the you know the backwards singing and and the way they did that, that's you know that I think serves the song. It doesn't just you know it doesn't seem as self indulgent as a lot of the later stuff. Hmm. So if you were to do another Radiohead collaboration with another musician in the future, who would you choose? Like, would you choose a different um, instrument besides cello? 
I would continue with Matt. Matt's okay. really Matt's really got the best of both worlds. I also, you know, have come to know that or I thought I knew that there wasn't really another band that I would do like a whole record of. And that's yeah. that's kind of why I did Out of My Hands was because I was I just had all these other bands that I never thought I'd play a Nirvana song, but you know, <laughs> Heart Shaped Box was you know, I had a really good solution for that. Mm-hmm. And um Tori Amos, you know, I learned a lot about playing Radiohead from listening to the way Tori accompanied herself on the piano. You know, a lot of the sort of the shadowing of her voice on the piano was really instructive about how to play all kinds of music on the piano. Um, but recently, I think maybe three or four years ago, I happened upon uh, the music of Mark Kozlak in Sun Kill Moon. And he, again, you know, brilliant guitar player, brilliant songwriter, great harmonies, great texture. I could easily do a whole Sun Kill Moon record. I've oh. done, I've done like most of a record's worth now. Do you think you might release it? I'd have to record it and find a place for it first, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. But I've done I've done a couple of uh violin and piano arrangements. I've done three violin, piano and cello versions of his songs and a good deal of his of his solo stuff. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, and as 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 with everything, it comes from the piano. You know, when he did uh Red House Painters, their, one of their first records, had two versions of the song Mistress on it. One was the band version, and the other one was him. It's the only song that Mark has done with piano, oh. with him playing piano. And so that's, that's where I got my, got my foot in the door on that music. Nice. Um, so do you think you're done with Radiohead for the future? Or do you have any other Radiohead-centric for the time, projects? For the time being, you know, I'm, I, you know if I, if I were going to do another song, you know, there are still, you know, there's still a to-do list, you know. I, I've never got around to my Iron Lung. That would be such a great yeah. song to do. There's still lots of songs that I would love to do, you know, Machila Dora. Yeah, there's still a few that. Well, and and I I did a piano arrangement of Arpeggian. Thank goodness that I had an extra set of hands with Matt so that I could <laughs> actually do a decent version or a playable version. Mm-hmm. So you know, there might be a, a few that you know we could do together. Mm-hmm. Might be a couple that I, you know, I think uh, that song from Suspiria might be nice as a solo piano thing. Yeah, yeah, I would love to hear all of those, so I hope you do them. <laughs> um, this is the final round, the lightning round. Favorite Radiohead album and why? Very hard. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the the thing that I love most about Radiohead is the, the through thoroughgoing quality of every record, that there's not really a bad, a weak track. Yeah. Although, you know, OK Computer was my favorite for a long time. I I can never listen through to electioneering. I don't I just know just I don't like the song. <laughs> and so with that in mind, uh Kid A was my favorite for yeah. a long time. And then In Rainbows became my favorite. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I think In Rainbows is definitely the one. And why? Just the the songwriting and the lushness of the textures and the integrity of the textures. It's not too up itself, you know, to it really sounds like this is the way these songs are supposed to go. And of course we heard we heard a lot of those songs on tour before they before they recorded them, right? Mm-hmm. And and the 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 studio version is the better version, which is the most telling for me. You know, so I I think In Rainbows was my all-time favorite. That's fair. Um this it might be the same album, might be a different album when you're introducing a friend to Radiohead for the first time, which album do you recommend? Hmm. 
Probably okay computer. Okay. I, I think because there, there are, first of all, there are a bunch of recognizable songs. Mm-hmm. And that was the first record that I was introduced to. So, so I go with that one. That's a good one. Yeah. Can't go wrong. So you mentioned this a little bit that one thing you lose in transcribing Radiohead for piano or just instrumental, that you lose the lyrics. Do you have a favorite Radiohead lyric? No, but it's funny. There was something on Twitter the other day. Somebody just like randomly put up that there was a robot that was, you know, sort of vandalized on the street. It was a robot that was walking through the streets of Philadelphia and had been vandalized. Another one, another robot somewhere else that had been put uh, sort of with, you know, deep fat sort of as if it coated with deep fat as if they were going to put it into a fryer. And the guy tweeting this, it was there was another robot mishap or vandalism sort of thing. And the guy that tweeted it said, I'm really loving the new Radiohead single. <laughs> <laughs> That's a gem. <laughs> um, so the last question, this is another kind of heavy one. Why do you think Radiohead's music will stand the test of time? Because I think... You know, as with as with any great classical music, I think it draws on not just its own time, but everything that's come up before it, and you know, presages a lot of what can come after it. Hmm. So it's the culmination of an acknowledgement of a lot of music history and a lot of history in and of itself, literary history. Uh, I think Tom's a very literate guy. Right. And so I think that, that there's a sort of a universality, a sort of a every man, but sort of a, a much deeper sort of every man kind of thing. Like, you know, I mean, he, he would say that he was overhearing conversations on a bus and that that might contribute to his, you know, his songwriting. So that, you know, it's, it's not autobiographical. It's really sort of uh, like through Robert Altman's, you know, sort of floating window, you know, sort of a dispassionate uh, observer but taking it all in and and really making something something new of it and 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 so and again musically comprehensively embracing a lot of musical tradition and making something new of it i think makes it last yeah well thank you christopher thank you. for coming on great pleasure <laughs> thank you did i not ask you anything that you wanted to comment on no i think i i think i picked it up and ran with it anytime i found a tangent <laughs> that i really wanted to hit yeah okay well perfect well thanks yeah, thanks <laughs> excellent thank you you've been listening to fake plastic podcast fake plastic podcast is an alternate thursdays production with new episodes every other wednesday you can find us on instagram or twitter at fake plastic pod If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you really liked this episode, please leave a review and share with your friends, Radiohead fans or otherwise. I'm Savannah Wright. Thanks for listening.